Welcome back to the program. Father Lewis, would you lead us in an opening prayer? Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, as we record um, this uh, broadcast, it is Friday, June 24th, and traditionally celebrating the birth of your servant, St. John the Baptist, but this year also celebrating the Sacred Heart of your Son. We ask for the mercy of your Son upon us and the prayers of the Baptist to guide us in our conversation, to mold our hearts in your own image, and to draw us closer to you in all things. We ask this in all your blessings, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Father Lewis. I mentioned one or two or three meanings, and, and you just did a giveaway. No. You, just, you gave away <laughs> one of the meetings, the, the Nativity of uh, St. John the Baptist. I, I feel kind of bad for St. John the Baptist. He's kind of getting pushed out. But I think he's pretty happy about it, right? If, if in heaven he's celebrating, he's not saying, "Hey, whoa, whoa, where's my day? Where's where's the celebration of my birthday?" But I think that he's happy that something even more um, stupendous is coming to birth uh, on the day that we're recording this again, Friday the twenty fourth, and that is the birth to a new moment in the history of the United States. That's right. What am I talking about, Father? Well, uh, those who are astute over the weekend, uh, certainly Friday morning, the news broke that the Supreme Court has um, issued a new uh, ruling on a case out of Mississippi, and it effectively overturns Roe v. Wade and uh, Planned uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, and sending the um, the abortion issue back to the states and the voters. Um, so that's effectively what happened, I think. And a great day for us who've been fighting the good fight all this time, and um, yeah, so three great, wonderful things to celebrate. Well, it's um, it, it's fascinating because it happened just after seven o'clock in the morning, uh, our time. Our time, yeah. And immediately it was like yeehaw! So I immediately went onto Facebook. I haven't posted anything on Facebook in ages, and I just put on there, "Praise God for the gift of life," and thank God America is moving towards life again. And sure enough, the vitriol. Here comes the firestorm now. <laughs> To be fair, most of it was really positive, but it is so fascinating. I don't know if that's the right word, Father, but um, I grew up in a town that was, I don't know, it felt like it was 90% Catholic. Mm -hmm. I didn't meet my first Protestant until I was in fifth grade, and I was in a public school. Wow. Okay, just hear that out loud. Yeah. Okay, hear that out loud, that everybody I was at school with, we all celebrated our first communion, and they were all there in class, right? And we had Good Friday off and all these other things that were just part of our life together as uh, in this suburb of Boston, a very, very, very Catholic area. So, okay, flash forward now 40 years and I have all these classmates I still connected with um, over Facebook. And it's amazing to see how far downhill, how far away from how degraded the sense of Catholic faith and Catholic belief has has taken root, taken hold, and emerged in the way of life and the way of seeing life of so many of my classmates. Yeah. I, well, yeah, that I'd be disturbed by that. I didn't have the same experience. I also went to public school, but we're not nearly as uh, Catholic of an area here in the Northwest as on the um, uh, Eastern Seaboard. But... Um, um, I mean, I, I see it sometimes even like even with my own family, you know, that, you know, in many ways we're so united, you know, as families are. But but then, you know, this issue comes up and and um, it just uh, it pains me and gives me sorrow that there's such division that people's thinking in this matter and, and actual beliefs in this matter it could be so uh, just so foreign to me and, and so um, so. Uh, rot with the culture of death, and uh, and they can't even see it. It seems, or want to acknowledge it. Well, you, you've heard the phrase how many times in studying philosophy, ideas have consequences. Mm -hmm. And one of the, like, when I think about the way that Saint John Paul II has impacted me, it's almost more as a philosopher than a theologian. And one of the ways he describes the coming to faith, the nurturing of faith, and the living out of faith, is that. The ideas, the truths of our faith, are to be implanted into consciousness. Isn't that a great phrase? Yeah. They are to be implanted into consciousness, and then in taking root, 
They give birth to an attitude. Now, ponder that. Like, let's think about that, that whatever you welcome into your mind as an idea that is valid, that is correct, that is properly associating our mind to reality, that it's going to shape how we see things. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what we're battling. Because on the face of it, on Facebook, one of my classmates put up a meme that was, rest in peace, Roe versus Wade, grr, in a real angry hellfire Mm. kind of picture. And I said, thank God that babies' lives are going to be saved today, and millions of babies' lives are going to be preserved in this next year, right? Um, That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. But how he sees it and all the, guess what? I didn't win many friends on that thread because it was his thread. And here they come over the wall. And then the people were, were doing kind of hate faces, uh, commenting on mine. And I said, do you, do you, do you celebrate babies being slaughtered? Are you happy that babies, innocent human lives are being killed? Question mark. Which, again, snarky me. <laughs> but isn't that, the, isn't that the case? Ideas have consequences. Right. What we believe takes root in, and shapes how we see, and then it gives rise to our whole way of relating, our attitude towards things like life. Mm-hmm. Well, what, where did this idea come from in the beginning that gave rise to this? Was the idea that this is not a human life or human person in the mother's womb, but the, the, you know, the proverbial clump of cells that they can't feel anything, it's you know, you know, none of that. And, and that idea became so implanted that that was still the prevailing thought even when I was coming of age, you know, that this is a clump of cells. Now, science has finally caught up to what we've believed all along and the ultrasound and everything else we see there's not a clump of cells, but clearly a human person with human DNA and human gender and, and uh, a human dignity, therefore, and all the rest. Um, you know, but the idea has already sunk in so in the deep, the roots have, of that idea have sunk in so deep in the minds of, of the culture that that they're not even hearing that anymore and and what they're replacing it with with because we've given the throne to almighty god science you know that science has caught up with us well okay we'll not address that argument anymore but now the new idea that it's the the woman's right to choose is is paramount even to the to the baby's right to life and so you're right we're still in this battle of ideas and um that's resulting in these consequences and and a massive cultural um, a definition and a cultural fight. Well, and historically, the way that I've typically uh, heard it constructed is that you're basically running in parallel lines in opposite directions, but they're not meeting. They're not running on the same line. So you have, it's about choice. No, it's about life. It's about the choice of the mother. No, it's about the life of the, uh, the life of the child in the womb. Oh, and also of the mother, yeah, right? Yeah. And of those around it. And it's one of those things where it becomes very challenging to say, no, you're looking at it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You're starting from the wrong beginning point. And as, be, as a result of that, you're not going to end up in the right place. And so this is where so many people bump heads, right. is that if you begin at a different starting point, you're not going to even be in the same in the same, uh, uh, in the same room when it comes to what it is you're talking about. Yeah. However... What I've noticed in the last six months is that it's no longer denied that it is a baby. Right. Instead, it's, yeah, it's a baby, so what? Mm-hmm. I still uphold the right of the mother to have the ability to do what she wants with her body and saying, a woman does not, my body will not be an incubator. Right. What a terrible, Mm -hmm. terrible way of describing the the, the woman and her body and the gift of the the woman's genius, the capacity to give birth to another human being. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know what? Gloves are off. Strip away the rhetoric. It's not about rhetoric anymore. It's about, no, no, no. Let's, Let's put it all out there. Fine. You want to call it a baby? It's a baby. So what? We still want to be able to slaughter that baby. Mm-hmm. Tough luck. Yeah. And that for me is part of the change. 
that has happened, that even even the um, the bringing out into the open of the validity of the science and the medical and the reality of that it's a baby doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't want that, and I'm willing to crush a baby's life if that baby's going to get in the way of my convenience, of my choice. I don't want to take ownership over my actions. I just want that baby to be eliminated so I can keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. That is a sad decay present in our culture. Yeah, yeah. And I think a further consequence that I wouldn't be surprised, I'd be very distressed to see, but won't be surprised, is of this idea that, okay, so it's a baby, so what? You know, more broadly is, that's another person different from me, so what? And so without even uh, without even a second thought or blinking of the eye, um, just outward expressions of violence, I mean, we're already seeing it in a lot of the, in, in the bigger cities where just for fun, you know, packs of people will will beat to death a, a homeless person. I saw in the, the news a couple, I think it was two weeks ago, some person just apparently for fun pushed a 55-year-old woman down onto a subway track in New York. And, you know, when, you, when you've divorced yourself from, from the thought and the reality of, of um, and the idea of human community and human compassion, you know, and you're saying, well, it's it's just a clump of cells. No, it's just a baby. So what? Well, it's it's going to grow. It's it's going to it's going to follow to the logical conclusion where we become each of us individually just our own our own autonomous uh, universe, and um, and uh, and it's a sociopathic um, uh, presentation of of a warped human person. When people like, so you're another person. So what? Why shouldn't I just beat you up? Or or rape you, or sell your organs for harvesting, or you know all these awful things that in our minds are awful now. But I think this is this is just the way that the culture is headed. I think we've already got euthanasia legalized, and 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 other things bec- as a as a fruit, a rotten fruit of this idea that took root in seventy three. So let's let's dig into this a little bit further because there is a sense of saying um, that this battle's not over, and it's not. Um, I rejoice in the fact that I heard the number was 26. 26 states have, have these trigger laws or something. Right? Have essentially a trigger law that says abortion is outlawed in our state, and if Roe versus Wade is outlawed, which is now is, or it's it's um, it is um, overturned, overturned, yeah. then it defaults back to state law, which is abortion is not legal in this state. So America, as we are talking on June 24th at 11 in the morning, uh, is more than half pro-life, which is really beautiful to me. And it also then raises the bar on where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the sickness and sadness of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, says that's it. This is now going on the ballot. We now have a new ballot issue. And she called this a, I don't know what she called it, but it wasn't positive. And it, uh, it's like, you're Catholic and you're a mother and a grandmother. Mm -hmm. How dare you? How tragic for you and for us as Catholics that you still identify as a Catholic and you take this way of relating to Roe versus Wade. Surprised now. No, shocked, no. Sad, it's one of those sad but true realities that somehow she as a Catholic was permitted to let that idea take root in her mind and grow that attitude in her politically, that she was so willing to compromise a position that has such dire consequences and think that she's doing something good. Now, I I don't know... all I can say is I hope she's just confused, but really, really, really confused rather than knowing that it's an evil thing and she's just doing it to stay in power. Right. So not, not very good choices there, right. but what a, what a sad day that there are still so many Catholics who stand up, speak out, and say, we are going to find other ways of protecting and defending the right of mothers to kill the babies in their wombs. Yeah. So... Battle's not done. No, and the battle is just going to take different forms. It's going to take different forms. Uh, Carrie and I were talking about that, about companies that are saying, we will fly our employees into states 
that permit abortion if they want that medical service. And I'm thinking, you are just saying to us, don't shop at our company. Don't shop with us. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran with Father Jeff Lewis on this uh, day. The, we're recording this on the amazing solemnity of the most sacred heart of Jesus. And also, Father rightly pointed out, the nativity of St. John the Baptist. And a day when we are celebrating the gift of the overturning of Roe versus Wade in this country. So thanks be to God for that, that the country is now moving in a direction that's positive. So ideas have consequences. So Father, I think that ideas have consequences now that there's this overturning. There's going to be an even clearer demarcation between companies, between businesses, between politicians that say, I stand for life, and that means something now, versus I stand for um, I stand for death. I stand for the continued slaughter of innocent babies in the lives of their mothers, and what ought we to do about that? Mm-hmm. So I raised an I- idea that Kerry said, hey, there's a company that's promoting the fact that they will fly their employees or transport them, not necessarily fly, but transport them into a state where they therefore can kill the baby in their womb. What do you think about that? What do you think about Catholics taking more uh, socially visible action to protest and to speak back to companies that would do that? I, th- you know, in a previous era, companies like this, you know, it may be known that you know a certain percentage of their of their proceeds of their profits, you know, are donated to these causes and so on like that. And so, as as Catholics, to a certain degree, we could be comfortable, I guess, or okay with still shopping with them because it's, you know, they're not advertising it and it's, I'm not shopping there because they do this, but they're being so, now these companies, a lot of them are being so um, overt about it and outspoken about it and going out of their way, <clears throat> excuse me, going out of their way to to make this statement that we, we can't, I, I can't in my conscience, good conscience, uh, justify uh, giving them my money anymore you know they're going they're going they're deliberately going out of their way to make this statement and and i need to respond in kind i need to go out of my way to to respond to not shop with them anymore um i already have in a couple of uh of instances you know i don't know if it's um uh potentially a slander liable to mention a company by name no, on no, the like program, I, i'll mention target in a minute so yeah, okay well there you go i mean i gave up my netflix account a year and a half ago because they came out with this movie called Cuties, which I never heard of before this whole hallabaloo, but features like 10-year-old girls like strip dancing or, you know, basically, or twerking or whatever these dance moves are called and very sexually uh, suggestive. And, and also they had produced and promoted a film made by Brazilian filmmakers that showed an explicitly uh, homosexual Jesus, apparently. And I'm like, that's it. They don't need my money. And so... I don't need their wares, and, um, and I'm not going around saying you should boycott Netflix, you know, from the pulpit or anything. But if people ask, I tell them, and I tell them why. And I, I think that you know, if the companies are going to go out of their way to 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 make these decisions, it's I think it's in, in, in good conscience on us. We need to. It's imperative on us. I think that we we should respond in kind. And um, no one says we have to shop at Target or 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 get a Netflix account. There's other alternatives that are not as hostile, and I think we ought to look into that. Yeah. So Carrie, I think Carrie went into Target earlier this month and um, saw like the such direct expressions of support for transgender ideology all over the all over the store that she just walked out and and she before she just walked out she said to an employee i want you to know i'm not shopping here and here's why and she just pointed at the the rainbow target thing and whatever and she said i'm never i'm never coming back and the employee just sort of rolled rolled her eyes not at Carrie, but at yeah i know i'm kind of powerless yeah. i'm kind of powerless this is just sort of like i don't I'm not in like that, but that's what they, 
you know, that's if they're going to take a, an uh, overt stance to say we want to advance this agenda, then I'm not going to give you money to make you profitable so that you can advance this agenda even more. So I do believe we're coming to that time. Yeah. Uh, Carrie and I are looking at um, Amazon mm-hmm. and you know, oh, who doesn't enjoy Amazon Prime and all of the benefits of the ease of shopping at Amazon and the ease of shipping and the ease of returning things. Boy, things are so easy and often um, you can find good deals. But wait a minute. Are we compromising our faith and our stance? Can't we find a store and an online network that is more supportive of our ideals? So we are on the lookout. We are digging into it more, and if we discover that, then Walmart's going to get a lot more of our business mm-hmm. if, if we, in fact, discover that Walmart is in a better situation in terms of alignment with our own um, faith and the values that flow from that faith. Yeah. So I do think that, thanks be to God, um, it's going to be one of those Elijah moments. How long will you straddle the issue? Mm-hmm. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And so instead of Baal, you can say, do you support the transgender ideology? Do you support abortion? Well, you know what? You're supporting something that is ultimately anti-God. Ultimately, they're demonic associations with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the question is, will we take a stand? Will we actually take a stand? Or will we just sort of shrug our shoulders and say it's all bigger than us and stay at the table and it's a time of dialogue and let's see if we can influence people. That moment has sailed. We're not living in that moment any longer. We're now in a a pure moment of take a stand. And so it may become one of those, again, further instances where there's going to be a need to say, you know what? That's a state I can live in. That state... That's living in exile, and we might have to take up a a more prophetic, protest-driven approach if we're going to stay in place. Otherwise, we're going to have to be in a place that is more supportive in laws and policies of our beliefs. So, Father, you don't have much choice about moving now. I know. So get ready to lead the protest. (laughs) Get ready to walk the street in prophetic uh, stands against I could petition excarnation into a, a friendlier <laughs> state, but um, no, I think that would be uh, abandoning the mission that I feel God has called me to. So I will not be doing that. But um, um, yeah, you know, it, you know, you made me think too. You know, the the line is in the sand, and and the era of dialogue is over. I mean, by the fruits you will know them. This was the message of the gospel earlier. Uh, well, uh, the, the you know this past week. And um, what are the fruits of the dialogue that the church has attempted with the secular culture? I mean, it's pretty obvious that the church has 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 uh, waffled on issues, and some perspectives have been more secularized. And and where has the se- uh, secular culture been become more overtly Christian? I we we don't see that at all. And so you know, well, we just got to be patient and continue dialogue. And I'm with you. I think that's over. Here, here's some dialogue. Let's let's voice what we stand, and you can take it or leave it. And our doors are open when you're ready to come to us, but we see where you're going, and we're not going to follow you anymore. So, you know, our dialogue is in the form of when you're ready to come back. We are. It's it's the story of the prodigal son. The church needs to be like the father. We will go out to a certain distance each day, longingly looking for the return of our son. But we're not going out into the pigsty with the son, you know. We're, we're, you know, that's not what the father did. That's not what the church should be doing. So that when the son comes to his senses and comes home, there we are, the church, ready to receive them with open arms. But you know, there's a limit to which we can do that before we ourselves are diluted in our, in terms of our own belief and our own convictions. And uh, this constant, you know, dialogue with cultures diluting our convictions, I perceive. So let's now translate that into the Catholic world, because sadly, the majority of Catholics, this is a crazy thing to say, the majority of Catholics are not even embracing Catholic beliefs. Just take a look at the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. which is associated with another theme we'll get to shortly, which is today's also the solemnity of the most sacred heart of Jesus. That is definitely a feast and a devotion linked to the Eucharist. 
But let's stay on this point that too often it's Catholics ourselves, it's we Catholics ourselves that are imitators of the moment in which we live far more than the fullness of our Catholic faith. Is that too strong? No, I mean, this is, you know, no, you're not too strong at all. I mean, this, the Vatican Council and, and St. Thomas Aquinas calls the, the Eucharist the source and summit of our faith. And, and if our faith in the Eucharist is diluted and, and uh, taken away, then... If 70% of self-identifying Catholics don't believe that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist, then you know what? That's a, that's a little bit of a, a betrayal of our faith. Yeah. But I think about it in terms of things like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, and Gavin Newsom, and, and, and. Mm-hmm. Isn't one of our—is is Patty Murray Catholic? One, I think she is. There's yeah, like I a couple so. of Catholic—we have two sen- state senators, right? Not yeah. state senators. Two, two senators from the state of Washington. I think one of them is Catholic. I think you're right. I think Patty Murray is the one. We, we should look that up. Yeah, so, before we— yeah. Before we t- too quickly identify her in the Catholic faith. But let's just say that— the way in which we have permitted the embrace of anti-Catholic, anti-God positions comfortably is its something that, when are we going to wake up, is the answer. When are we going to wake up? And I know that you have such a heart for the work of making disciples of catechesis and of apologetics. And so is the, like, that, that passion that you have for those things at all associated with the attempt to address the painful lack and deformed approach to those things that have been the principal reality in the lives of Catholics? Mm-hmm. Uh, it has uh, impacted my... Um... Uh, I think very much my uh, my passion for those things, my approach to those things. I think just thinking like you know the the first emotional impact is is just a uh, just profound sorrow. I think um, in con- you know consistently as I as I think of these uh, kind of fallen away Catholics, like there's there's a block that pre- that uh, separates them from the the greatness and the beauty of and the truth of of what we truly believe as as catholics and they're and they're missing out on it for for something else for you know they had gold in their hands they chucked that aside for slop and for straw and and that just grieves me because you know i want so much to share with you and to and to partner with you and and to show you uh what you're missing out on and and um and and you think that what you got is is better than than the kingdom i i just I, it's it saddens me because they're missing out, and it and it confuses and perplexes me because I just don't understand how they could do that, except that you know well, sheer pride, the, mo- the 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 momentum of sheer pride, like well this is what I've chosen and I'm sticking to it, and that's the only thing I can think of that would justify that. But anyway. I, I would say this that um, I what I put it up to is on the one hand the clever, pervasive, seductive presentation of the anti-gospel that we have present today in the culture of death through the various modes of media and eventually seeping into laws and policies in the state. And that people just, they are influenced by that. It just, it sows in their minds and hearts, and then that's what they end up believing. Mm -hmm. So go back to my high school classmates, the things that they believed when they graduated from high school compared to what they believe now radically different mm-hmm. radically different it could have gone it could have gone differently they could have gone deeper into the truths of their catholic faith lived those fa- lived those truths more fully and then they would be rejoicing today mm-hmm. in the majority or not and that's a failure of the church to present our faith with as much of a compelling uh with a much of a compelling uh, approach as the culture did. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the various modes and means of formation and education have led to the conversion of mindset of many Catholics to embrace a culture of death. Yeah. So frankly, it's, it is bad on us. We did a lousy job of presenting the faith 
because it, the way that you said it, I'm going to, um, I'm going to add to it, which is that the truth is not only beautiful, but it's good, mm-hmm. which means that you're going to flourish. Mm-hmm. You will flourish as an individual, as a couple, as a family, and as a society if you embrace the truth of our faith. If you don't, it's going to lead to brokenness, darkness, and all of the other ills that, guess what, we see all around us, self-harm, suicidal thinking, depression, anxiety, people could just in, in dark places. Why? Because when you believe a lie, it leads to brokenness. When you believe the truth, it sets you free. It brings peace. It brings joy. It brings life. It brings freedom. It brings flourishing. Mm-hmm. And yet, we don't hear that. And when people don't experience it, they just feel that much more frustrated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I just think that, um, that as, as Catholics, you, Father, as a priest, as a spiritual father to us, You're called to lead, provide, and protect us. Well, it's the truth that's going to protect us. Mm. And it's the truth that is going to help us to flourish. It's going to provide life to us. And we Catholics, gosh, we need to be drinking from clean sources if we're going to recover the freedom, joy, and peace that the Lord has for us, the flourishing that he wants for us as God's children. But that means rebuking, rejecting, renouncing lies, and um, embracing the fullness of what the church actually says. All right, Father, again, we're up against a break. When we come back, more sound insight. We're going to talk about the Sacred Heart. Welcome back to Sound Insight. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, the pastor of St. Mary here in Spokane Valley. And uh, today on the program, well, we're recording this on the Feast of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus and of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. In the last segment, I want to talk about, um, this is the celebrating the birth of St. John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking how the overturning of Roe versus Wade was going to be a beautiful sign of the Sacred Heart, right? It, it's so fitting that it happened on that feast day. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's also fitting that it happened on the feast of the birth of St. John the Baptist, yeah. right? Maybe this is going to be a, 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 a day of bringing to birth new John the Baptist mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. Well, and you know, so because Sacred Heart is a movable feast, it's not fixed to June 24th, but it's fixed to its Friday in a certain proximity to uh, Pentecost. But, you know, Dobbs Day, as I've been calling it, um, uh, will always be on June 24th, which will always be the Nativity of John the Baptist. And so the Nativity, when he was born, exactly, you know, this uh, uh, blessed and beautiful baby in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, already rejoicing at the approach of his Lord and, and, the, and his Lord's mother, um, and, you know, is an obvious tie-in with this also. But St. John the Baptist, and I was thinking about this too, um, you know, was put to death because he stood up to a tyrannical and unjust government. <laughs> so I'm like, well, if we keep, if we hold our convictions, like, you know, dialogue is great, but we're going to, this is where we are. We're going to have to stand up and rise and it's going to be tough. And we might be character assassinated. We might be doxxed, canceled and all the rest, but we'll suffer some kind of um, white martyrdom just as John the Baptist suffered a red martyrdom as we continue to fight this good fight of faith. So I, I saw that double connection, you know, the first thing this morning when it dawned on me that, this happened on his birthday. Well, you're way ahead of me. <laughs> but I love both of those reflections about St. John the Baptist. The first is that the only story connected with his birth or his time in the womb is the visitation. Mm-hmm. And wait a minute. Holy cow. On the Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist, we're actually recalling the scene in the scriptures that does what? It gives a prophetic confirmation that life is in the womb. Mm -hmm. And holy cow, Mm -hmm. wow, I love that. God, you're really cool. (laughs) God, you're amazing. And then the second is that how did he end up dying a martyr's death? It was standing up to the tyrannical government of Herod. Mm -hmm. My goodness, that is... And even you can say... Wasn't Herod keep can continue to come to him because he found his words both convicting and compelling? Right. He was both attracted to his words, but convicted by them as well. Mm-hmm. But then there was the Herodias that is like, you know what? Yeah. 
acts that voice. I don't, that guy, he is, he is a pain. Mm-hmm. We got to get eliminate him. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is so, that is so very interesting. Yeah. Huh. Good job, Father. Thank you. That was nice job. <laughs> Father Nagel, you know, take, take another week off, Father. You know, we're, we're covered. We got this. This is good. Um, let's come around to the Feast of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. And this is a feast that goes back to 1690 with the vision of the Sacred Heart to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque uh, in Para Paré Lemonial in France. Um, this beautiful nun. Was she a visitation nun? A visitation? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. A visitation. I, said, I think yesterday I said she was a Carmelite. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no. I think she was a visitation nun. And uh, th- she had a visitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the message, that, um, the message that Jesus spoke to her was about his love. And it's the love that he has shown the world. And he uses certain descriptors of how we as human beings and as members of the church have responded to his love really striking words, words that we don't hear often. Neglected, indifferent, blasphemed, and ungrateful, or sacrilege is the other, other word sometimes. So there, there's an indifference, there's a negligence, there is a sacrilegious, and a, um, what was the last one? Ungrateful. Ungrateful, yeah. an, uh, uh, an ingratitude that is is the way that we have related to the love of Jesus. So I want to explore those with you. Yeah. People don't explore these things, but if Jesus chose those words, they mean something. Mm-hmm. So, and again, when he talked about his love, he was talking about his love shown through his act of redemption, the Paschal mystery, but also made manifest and renewed and made real in the Eucharist, so a Mass. Mm-hmm. So the Mass and His presence is Eucharist. So let's take a look at those four words. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the idea that His love as made manifest in the Eucharist is neglected? There's an indifference. There is a sacrilegious or blasphemous approach or uh, an ingratitude. I'd probably start with ingratitude because in connection with the Eucharist, which it means um, Thanksgiving, you know, the very, the very name of this most holy sacrament uh, of the altar is, you know, is, uh, is direct, it feels like it's directly attacked when we approach and receive or think about the Eucharist with a, just kind of a blasé attitude of ingratitude, like, you know, this is great, thanks, Jesus, you know, but not really meaning it. We just kind of go back to our pews after receiving or go back to our day. So um, anyway, that's why I would start, because of that linguistic connection. And, okay, so yeah. this, this brings me to a story. North American College, lunchtime, we do our prayer, and then bless us, O Lord, and these that gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, we say, we do that traditional prayer, thanking the Lord for the bounty we're about to experience. And then they come rolling out um, in these rolling um, uh, carts a bunch of trays that are then going to be served. At the North American College, at lunchtime, you had two courses. So the first course was pasta. And the pasta course comes out, and it gets served up. And I'm sitting there at the table with these other holy young seminarians preparing a couple years away from the priesthood. And I can remember... All of a sudden, this guy looked at this and said, this is terrible. This is horrible. I can't believe we're getting this. And then someone else jumped in and said, yeah, my diocese is paying good money for me to be here. This is horrible. And I just remember looking at these guys, and then the attitude spread. Right? It just was this, it had this infection, this infectious attitude of ingratitude. Hey, brother, you just said a prayer thanking the Lord in advance for the gift you are about to receive as coming directly dropped down from heaven. Like if the, if the roof opened and an angel came and delivered this on a tray, would you have said that? The answer is no way. You would have stood in awe and wonder and said, this is heavenly delivered? How can I be anything but grateful? Mm-hmm. But there's this sense of disconnect between what they just said, what they ought to be living, and then what they 
um, what what they just prayed, yeah. what they ought to be living, and then what they just said in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it feels like to me, in some ways, that's what Jesus was saying about ingratitude. Mm-hmm. Like, are you kidding me? Look what I, I, I'm giving you myself. Mm-hmm. Where, it's like the, the, the nine lepers that were just healed. Yeah. Only one came back? Where are the other nine? Are mm-hmm. you kidding? What, what else do I have to do? Right to get a proper acknowledgement. Right, yeah. It, and that's the, the gift from heaven. That's the, the true bread that comes down from heaven. And uh, I think like you were saying about the bowl of pasta, like we ought to have a, a, a robust uh, approach of gratitude, I think, when we realize that nothing, none of this is ours. All of this is pure gift. We got to keep that at the forefront of our minds, and hopefully that will keep us, A, humble. You know, I don't have any of this stuff because of anything that I did. Um, you know, God has blessed me with the gifts that have helped me to appear cure, whatever. Um, but it's still, it, ultimately, it's all still gifts. So, so I'm not the bee's knees here, you know, and I got to be humble and then uh, grateful. And, uh, and, you know, because I realized, thank you, God, for providing what I cannot provide for myself. And then that leads to joy that God of the God of all creation would, would grace me with this and, and fills me with joy. So there's a natural progression there in terms of our emotional and, um, and spiritual attitude, I think. Well, and I got to tell you, as parents, one of the attitudes that bothers Carrie and me the most is taking things for granted mm-hmm. or responding in a way that says, I want more, I want better, yeah. not being grateful. Yeah. So having the attitude of gratitude, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than taking things for granted, it's one of the biggest things that we attempt to put to death in our kids is to give them hearts that are full of gratitude. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and then Psalm 116, how can, how can I ever, you know, make return to the Lord for all the good he has done for me? And then Jesus himself gives us the way to do that through the Eucharist, through Thanksgiving, to be able to thank God for the gift of life, new life, for forgiveness, for all the good things that the Lord gives to us. Okay, check gratitude. All right. And actually, when we come back, I I want to see if you can come up with maybe two ways, or at least one way, to, um, to express gratitude better to the Lord for the gift of the Eucharist. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kernan with Father Jeff Lewis on this feast day that we're recording this program. It's Friday. It's the Feast of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. Um, We're talking about the message that Jesus gave to St. Margaret Mary. The first message was, Behold the heart that has loved so much and has had been given in return so little, but instead been shown ingratitude, negligence, uh, indifference, and, um, And and sacrilege. So, Okay, if, if we're now all feeling convicted that we're not that grateful to the Lord for the gift of the Eucharist, how do, how do we show a greater sense of gratitude to the Lord for the gift of the Eucharist? So what immediately comes to mind for me is, what, what are we doing um, in the Mass immediately after we receive Holy Communion? Hopefully what we are doing, and certainly what we should be doing, is when we return to our place in the pew... A, let's be mindful that in this moment, and for conceivably like the next, what, 10, 15 minutes until that host has been digested in our system, we are physically connected with Jesus, body and blood, soul and divinity, physically present and connected with Jesus, and simply meditating on that profound mystery that they may be one, as you, Father, and I, and I and, and I and you, so that we may be in them, that's from his priestly prayer in John 17, you know, let us reflect on that and, and the mystery of that just um, completely overwhelm us with awe. And, and, um, and so we ought to be, you know, kneeling or, or I guess, uh, seated in the pew after receive Holy Communion and just marveling in that mystery instead of looking around at who else is at Mass that day or taking a mental list of, okay, Mass is almost done, we're, we're going to do this next and all this other stuff like you know, sufficient for, for its own moment is its own concern, you know, kind of paraphrasing Jesus. So that's one thing I would do. And then to continue to reflect upon, you know, that's, that's when we can really reflect upon the gift of the Eucharist. And, and the second thing that comes to mind is after Mass concludes, rather than jumping up right away and going out and, and gabbing about whatever, but to, to remain in the pew and, and saw 
in, in, in rapt, awe-filled prayer, reflecting on the, sh the sheer gift of the whole Mass, in the context of which was the Eucharist, as another quiet way of offering um, a meditative uh, gratitude to the Lord for this grace. So those are two, I think, very practical ways that, can, that people can start like right now that I think would be a great way of thanking the Lord for this great gift. That's beautiful. And then wasn't that true, that devotion called Thanksgiving after communion, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving after mass. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, it's something that we've lost, but we can easily recover. Mm -hmm. So that's really good. At St. Mary, I mean, I deliberately build in a time for silence after Holy Communion, as you know, because you go, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, what some people would say is washing the dishes, but what I'm really doing is purifying the sacred vessels, which has its own prayer and kind of its own procedure. And I more or less take my time with that deliberately to help um, uh, build in time for silence. And I ask the musicians, like no instrumental music, you know, except for rare occasions, no post-communion hymn, but let's have the silence so that people can do that with greater ease. Yeah, thank you for doing that. All right, the second, so we've got three other, three, uh, other, uh, three other failures on part of uh, the church to respond to the love of the Lord expressed in the Eucharist. Okay, where do we want to go next? Negligence, blasphemy, sacrilege, or, um, or indifference? I think sacrilege. Okay, let's yeah. go. <laughs> where do you want to begin with sacrilege? How, how does that show up? Well, I think— And what know, do we do about it? So yeah, let's we, start. Can, uh, we can read in the news how that's been showing up, that there's been— you know, increasing acts of violence in churches, not just the United States, but everywhere. People breaking in, oh, breaking open tabernacles, stealing tabernacles and all that they contain in their inn. And any of these uh, abuses or violence done against the blessed host is, is an act of sacrilege. Now that's in the extreme, but in a more common, sadly common, but, uh, but um, you know, more uh, potentially more uh, prevalent amongst the faithful is we are actually committing sacrilege when we receive Holy Communion unworthily because we have unconfessed, unrepented mortal sin on our soul. And as St. Paul says, um, you know, in his letter to the Corinthians, one of his letters to the Corinthians, you know, don't you know that when you do this, you are consuming condemnation upon yourself, I think is how he puts it. In other words, we're just heaping mortal sin upon mortal sin by doing that, and that mortal sin is called sacrilege. So we see the more extreme varieties of this in the news, but we ought to be at least as horrified by the more subtle uh, um, uh, violations of this in the form of sacrilege in our own personal lives. I have unrepented, unconfessed mortal sin in my soul, and I need to confess it, and otherwise I'm just swallowing condemnation myself. You know, it's it's again, it's a it's a, an atmosphere thing. It's something that is it's in the, it's it's in the awareness of of too few Catholics, mm -hmm. and I know that when I was brought up in the faith, there was. I'm trying to remember any times I was really challenged to not go to communion because of the presence of a mortal sin on the soul. I think what I defaulted back to was, I'll make a perfect act of contrition, and then I'll just go to confession at the next available opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because it's too embarrassing. It's kind of calling me out and shameful if I don't go to communion. Mm -hmm. And that's changed in us. That has definitely changed in the current family since we've moved here, mm -hmm. is a an incredibly heightened awareness that says, I ought not go to communion because I am not worthy right now. Yeah. I am not in that state of grace. So that often means head to Mass early so you can get to confession mm -hmm. before you go to communion. Oh, you know what? You miss out on communion. And then you better find a time to get to communion before the next Mass. And I'll have kids say to me, receive communion for me, because I, I, I'm not able to go to communion. And so that's just so beautiful to me. But it's a, it's a powerful way to um, avoid a sacrilege. Take the embarrassment, make the extra effort, get to confession, uh, but receive communion worthily. So I, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about... About, uh, do you want to pick up on that at all? Because I, I yeah. want to cover the last two. We only have a few minutes here. Oh, okay. Well, really quick, you know, a practical thing what people can do about this, I think, is I, I, know, I recognize that there is that fear or that, um, that nervousness that, well, if I go up and I don't receive, I just receive a blessing or I don't go up at all, that it's going to be embarrassing. People are going to ask questions, and especially Father. Maybe that's what's going on in people's minds. But for me personally, when I perceive someone who normally receives suddenly is not receiving one day, that's actually inspiring for me. Because I'm thinking, this person's got a, a more heightened awareness of, of the effect of sin and grace in this person's life, and they're responding in kind. And, um, 
and and they're taking their faith that you know the next step in terms of that extra seriousness, and uh, and they're expressing humility to me, and and I don't. I'm not judging at all. I'm, I'm, I am perceiving and thinking about all these other good things. And so there's every reason to refrain when you feel that you need to. Yeah. Nice. All right. Negligence or indifference? Where do you want to go? Let's do indifference. All right. What should we say about that? You know, it's like... I don't care. Yeah. I don't <laughs> that was a care. Joke. I mean, <laughs> I know Father says it's a sacred host, but I mean, it's a tasteless bread wafer and... Eh, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm too lazy to put a, to a, to put a consonant on that. It's just... Uh, you know, I could talk like, let's go to Eucharist decoration. Uh, uh, there's about a million other things I'd rather do with my hour. Um, uh. Well, when I think about indifference, I think about um, the the reality of bread and wine go up to the altar. God comes down, and we're present at something that is divine. It's holy, and we ought to be reverent. And I think that. Reverence is the remedy for indifference. Rever- uh, and one of the principal manifestations of indifference is being casual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so um, making acts of reverence in my approach to Mass and being present at Mass will help overcome indifference. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. last one, Father. You can see how much time we have oh. left here. A minute and a half. Ah. Let's talk about negligence. Okay. So, you know, negligence, you know, uh, maybe another way of understanding is like maybe carelessness, huh? Mm-hmm. Carelessness in receiving the Holy Communion, if you're, you know, in that context. I've seen this a lot, and it frustrated me to no end during the days of the masks and mass, that I try telling people a couple of times, like, look it, you can stand to take the mask off for 10 whole seconds so you can more reverently receive Holy Communion, because I've seen people drop the host, crack the host, trying to negotiate with the mask, I think that there's negligence there that that you know I don't I'm I'm, neg- I'm I'm neglecting the the profundity of what I have in my hand or that I'm being offered here and um and I'm letting it doesn't have to be the mask be it be anything just a, a a distracted attention and I've dropped the host or you know these are all instances of negligence and people are horrified by it they've come to me after mass and expressed great sorrow and shock that this happened but it began with some negligence. Yeah, think about, okay, if I'm negligent in changing the oil to my car, it's going to break down. Yep. If I'm negligent in taking care of how I'm eating healthily, my health is going to break down. Are we negligent when it comes to forming and understanding of the gift of the Eucharist? Like how much, how much effort do we put into studying, reading, praying about the gift of the, uh, the Mass, about the Holy Eucharist outside of Mass? Mm-hmm. That, I think we're just negligent. We're just too busy doing other things. And then for me, the the one that where I fall short and I sin is I don't battle hard enough at mass to ba- uh, to fight against um, distractions. Mm-hmm. Like it's easy in my mind to start wandering away. That's an easy thing. But am I negligent in saying no, no? Fight. Stay focused. Stay attentive. Stay involved. Stay engaged. I think that's a form of negligence that. Everyone experiences, and everyone can can repent of and do better. So, all right, Father. Hey, we got through the hour. Yeah. Beautiful day to celebrate uh, all these wonderful things. Um, I hope and pray that on Monday this isn't uh, there are a whole bunch of things that happened over the weekend because uh-huh. you hear about these attacks that night of rage and all this sort of thing. So let's pray against that. But thank you, Father, for being with me today. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.